as an entrepreneur, you're kind of always looking for the ability and time uh, and uh, opportunity to create more startups. And often, you know, that involves a, a winding road. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we sit down with Josh Luber, who is the Chief Vision Officer for Fanatics Collectibles. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, for sure. I'm looking forward. This is going to be a fun conversation uh, across the board. So I want to start a little bit with your background. You've had a fascinating career that led you to the, the seat you're in today. So first, for those not familiar with the background, can you talk about the journey you've been on? And then I want to dive into what Fanatics is doing. Well, maybe it's a fascinating career, or maybe I'm still just like a 10-year-old kid that likes baseball cards and sneakers and now get to do it as a career. You know, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I've started and run, kind of lost count, I think six full-time businesses at this point. And, um, but, you know, like a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly before they have any type of sort of large success, I, you know, I always had some sort of corporate job in between. I grew up in Philly. I went to Emory for for college, I was later a JD MBA at Emory, and in between every startup, you know, I had some job. The most notable was in between the startup which crashed in, uh, or was part of the the crash of 2008, and then uh, the startup that would become StockX. I was a strategy consultant at IBM, worked out of New York, and and that's where I really went from. I thought I knew a lot about data to now I know a lot about data and was really sort of changed the trajectory of, of how I would uh, interact in a lot of ways with the startups that I was creating and the point of view from those, which being much more sort of data focused and the evolution. And so while I was at IBM is where we created the business that would become StockX. And I was doing that on the side at IBM. But as a as an entrepreneur, you're kind of always looking for the the ability and time uh, and uh, opportunity to create more startups. And often, you know, that involves a, a winding road. Without a doubt. So, you know, StockX, amazing story, what you guys did there. What was the bridge that took you from StockX to having discussion about what would eventually become Fanatics Collectibles? Yeah, you know, StockX, which is a secondary market um, and which very quickly became the leading uh, resale market for sneakers and streetwear and other high demand products. We were always just looking for what other products might make sense to put on the site. In And then so, you know, we launched in February of 16, but by the end of 2018, you know, we're really in growth mode and I started to see what was happening in the trading card world. Um, again, just looking for what products might make sense to put on the site. Trading cards really started to take off on eBay around there. And, you know, not coincidentally, I think I also then rediscovered my own trading card collection sitting in my parents' basement where it had been since 1995 when I graduated high school, like basically everyone else, you know, my generation. And, you know, the combination of those two, I really started getting back into cards personally myself and then starting to see the opportunity there for the business. I mean, it was very clear at that time, end of 2018, beginning of 2019, that what was going to happen in trading cards, that the growth was going, that it was because it's about people. This is exactly what we went through at StockX. The growth in sneakers really from 2012 to 2015 was about all these people coming back into the, the sneaker industry. For trading cards, it's the same thing. For my generation who now are older and, and have more disposable income or have kids that, that might be into trading cards. And so 
I was getting deep, deep into cards. And then in the, the following summer, in the summer of 19, I replaced myself as CEO at StockX. We had just done our you know, unicorn round, dying the company at over a billion dollars. And it was very clear that we were moving towards an IPO and scale. And you know, I'm a, I'm a startup guy. So when that happened, then I got to spend 100% of my time in trading cards. And you know, the short version of what ended up being a, a slightly uh, bumpy road was that it took a minute to realize that just because I started the company didn't mean I needed to stay there. And then the just world of possibilities in the trading card, um, you know, led me to, to figure out, you know, what's the business that, that makes sense there. And then I don't know if it's, if it's, uh, you know, coincidentally or serendipitously, the idea for, for StockX, the big idea around there are certain products that sit at the intersection of consumer goods and financial assets. They, they are consumer goods, but they have these unique qualities that are driven by supply and demand and market conditions. And that was, you know, how you change commerce, how you change retail was always the idea around StockX. And then the realization was that trading cards are actually a more perfect product for that idea than sneakers ever were for a lot of reasons, but primarily because sneakers are, aren't actual good investments. They're still just rubber and leather and glue and they will deteriorate. Whereas trading cards have always been true financial assets. And so, you know, these, all these sort of pieces come together to see that, you know what, you know, the continuation of, of my vision actually is in trading cards and then to figure out, you know, whether I was going to do it at StockX to leave StockX and we can go into the, the longer version of the story. But the short version is that I spent a lot of time trying to figure out who to work with and was fortunate to meet Michael Rubin and to work with him in order to move from the secondary market in sneakers into the primary market for trading cards and really have an opportunity to expand on that vision in terms of the new ways that people can buy and sell those products. And, you know, that was, that was always the goal, right? Is how do you, how do you get a, a more control over the industry so that you can change the way that people buy and sell it? So let's dive in a little bit on that, uh, that journey that you're going on now with Finax Collectibles. So last fall, you wrote a post called Trading Cards Are Cool Again. Yeah, what kind of inspired that? Uh, uh, well, first of all, I like writing. And uh, I think in another life, I might have been a, um, a writer. But the trading card industry is so extraordinary because you know, we had this massive growth in the industry in the 80s and 90s. It crashed at the end of the 90s. And then for the last 20 years, it shrunk down to this tiny little industry. A lot of people thought it went away, but it didn't. And as the growth started happening in 2017, 2018, and the money started coming in, the whole industry was so fragile. And so we had this massive explosion of prices towards the end of 20. And then this massive crash in 21, in the beginning of 21. And the post was really a answer to an email that someone had, had emailed me and said, hey, why do you think the market crashed so hard? And I started writing the email and it became a little too long of the email. And the person said, hey, you should post this on your Instagram. I think people would be interested in, in what you think of it. And then we started cleaning it up and then we started writing it. And then all of a sudden it was 53 pages, single space with charts and footnotes. And But it was really trying to answer the question of, um, what happened in the market? Why did it crash? And what does that mean for the future of the market in terms of you know, growth, the management by the trading card companies? And very you know, interestingly, from a, from a timing standpoint, 
I started writing that before anyone knew that I was working with Michael and, and starting Fanatics Collectibles and trying to acquire the trading card licenses because that was a, a thing we were doing quietly for, for many months. And as I was writing the paper, that, start, that became public knowledge. It became clear that I was going to be um, you know, kind of one of the leaders of this industry moving forward. So then the, the point of view of that really started to sharpen a little bit and to be clear that, hey, look, this isn't like a you know, announcement of intention from a business, but it really is trying to be a, a, a smart academic view of, of the market. But, you know, I think a lot of people read it that way just because of the timing and everything else. But it's a blast to be able to spend, you know, real quality time writing interesting intellectual um, analyses of, of a market that is so nascent and so early that we're going to look back in, in 10, 20 years, you know, in the way that, you know, you look back at like the internet in like the nineties, like it's, it's, it's really like that. So hopefully that becomes a guiding post for a lot of people in terms of how we can grow this industry smartly. Yeah. And I think that's the thing I love most about that paper. It wasn't a testament of this is what fanatics collectibles is going to do. It was, here's the opportunity of how we can all grow this thing together and where it can go. So when you think about that, and when you're building out your vision for fanatics collectibles, and then zero cool, which is one of your, you know, your first efforts, I hope you talk about, mm -hmm. you know, how are you deciding what's the stuff that you as a company wants to take on? Versus what's the stuff that you need to support for the industry to have, you know, all the rising tides, if you will? Yeah, that's a, a critical part of all of this. The idea that there, the trading card industry, like many, um, is a connected ecosystem of different parts. And the people that stay in the hobby for a long time, the people that make uh, careers and, and build businesses in the hobby are those that, um, that participate in a lot of parts of that, you know, you will research cards, you make a purchase decision and you will open up a pack of cards. You will maybe get a good card, decide if you want to keep it or if you want to sell it, or if you want to have it graded, you build a collection of cards, you need to track its value. You need to have it insured. You need to store it. You know, then you decide that you want to sell it. Maybe you want to sell it as a, at an auction. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a very clear journey and it's very um, uh, interconnected from the consumer side. But the infrastructure of the industry and the businesses that existed there and, and exist there have been very fragmented. And it's a function of the fact that, you know, five years ago, the industry was still, you know, a tiny industry that very few people even knew existed, which is a, a long way of saying that because we are now the primary manufacturers of cards in the industry, or at least we will be shortly, the obligation is ours to set that framework. It doesn't mean that we do all of those pieces. It doesn't mean that we become a grading company or we become a, a vaulting company, but there needs to be a, a, a change in the way this industry uses technology to make it easy for the consumers to do the things that they want to do to make it easy so that they are easy to come into the industry and that they stay in the industry. And so a lot of what we do right now is, is talk about um, these two sort of dueling growth priorities, which is, you know, growing the, the, the core market, the primary market sensibly, but also um, adding technology and marketing to an industry that allows us to work with people and, and everybody to, to grow that. So it, it's a, it's a massive question. It's a massive piece of work, but it really is our obligation to set the, the framework for how people work together. And, and um, yeah, it, it's just a part of our strategy right now. As you mentioned, you're an entrepreneur at heart, you know, six different companies and counting that you've been involved with. 
you know, that fragmentation has also led to a lot of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs meaning a lot of different things. An entrepreneur meaning the individual that's collecting and selling stuff on eBay, the entrepreneur that runs a hobby shop, the entrepreneur that's doing breaking. Like, how do you think about that bringing, you know, the obligation, as you said, that the infrastructure needs to not be fragmented, but to still support the entrepreneurs across the board? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good point because in a lot of cases, particularly when the industries are trying to grow, become more efficient, be easier for consumers, fragmentation can be a really bad thing. But there's parts of the industry where it's a good thing. So, for example, in marketplaces right now, um, eBay is the leader for marketplace um, for the trading card industry. There's been probably a half a dozen others that have uh, started that have real credibility and, and traction. PWCC, Alt, you have auction houses like Golden and, and Heritage. Um, you have a couple others. I'm, I'm probably blanking on Starstock. And it's not necessarily a good thing to have many marketplaces because what happens is prices get out of whack because they're selling for one over here and one over there because you know uh, buyers get split, sellers get split. You don't necessarily have the right eyes on the right cards at the right time. And that leads, by the way, to a lot of opportunities, a lot of good buying opportunities and selling opportunities if you know but ultimately, it's an inefficient system, and it was the reason why at StockX, we created a marketplace that had one single product page for those products, as opposed to eBay, you would go and, and you know, there are millions of listings for, for a single product. Um, it's all about kind of that efficiency. So, um, so we think in, in marketplaces, fragmentation is a bad thing. The flip side, um, hobby shops is literally the definition of, of fragmentation. We want a hobby shop on every corner of every street in every city in every state. You know, the, the more that are out there that can, um, uh, to, can, can be on the front lines for more customers that want to learn about the hobby, for more kids that want to come in there with their parents or with their friends. So that's good. Same thing with breakers. Um, you know, it's great to have different breakers for different channels, for different people, different price points at different times, different content. Um, so fragmentation there is also really good. So it's really just about, um, you know, what part of the industry and how where if the focus for everybody is growth, it's just, you know, what parts are, do you get efficiencies by bringing things together? And what parts do you reach scale by, by doing it separately? Yeah, that's brilliant. So I want to talk about that efficiency and dig, dig a little bit more into it. You know, recently you guys announced Zero Cool. And one of the first things was your V Friends Blind Dutch auction. And that was all about efficiency and bringing efficient pricing to the market. So can you talk about what was the inspiration behind that? And uh, what did you guys learn with going with this blind Dutch auction model? Yeah, I'm biased, but this is the right way to sell um, any high demand product, any product that you would ask the question, what is this worth? Any product that is truly driven by supply and demand. And historically, the way that consumer goods companies, you know, Nike or Adidas or Jordan Rand, uh, you know, Supreme, the way they do this is they continue to price the products the same way. They create a artificial retail price, and then they rely on distribution strategies like raffles or people camping outside of stores or uh, allowing people, you know, to, to buy online and then people are using bots. And all of this is is just very inefficient and frankly, in a lot of cases, just I mean, lunacy and completely illogical to rely on mass chaos as a, a distribution strategy. The problem with that is it's a, it's a pricing problem. So you have to ask the question, what is the right way to price 
consumer goods that are coming into um, a market, into a retail market, that gives everyone a, a fair chance to get it. You can't just artificially make the product, you know, ten thousand dollars or some huge number. So we, you know, we didn't make this up. We literally we we studied markets. We talked to economists. We talked to finance professors. You know, um, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is the right way. And the answer is a blind Dutch auction, which um, is a, a a pricing mechanism that has been used in finance for for decades, and um, it allows the market to set the price. And I'll do the, the the short version. So the blind part is that you allow everybody um, the same time to bid on the products. So first of all, you tell everybody what products are available. You tell everybody exactly how many are available. So let's say there's 10 widgets available for sale. You give everyone three days, some amount of time, and they can place a bid for them for what they're willing to pay for the product. You don't have to try to beat someone else's bid. There's no, um, uh, you know, try to a, a time clock that you have to beat. Everyone has the same fair chance. At the end of the, the auction period, if there's 10 widgets, then the top 10 bids win. And that is a very clear, logical, fair system. But the way that the products get priced is that the lowest of the winning bids, so in that case, the 10th highest bid, becomes what's called the clearing price. And everybody pays the clearing price, even the person that was the highest bid. So if those 10 bids come in and they're $1,000, 900 700 600 and the 10th highest bid is $400, right? Then everybody pays $400, even the person bid 1000 That's the Dutch auction part of the experience. And that does three things. One, it makes sure that everybody who is buying this product all at the exact same time are paying the same price. And that is a logical fair system. There are forms of a Dutch auction. There's what's called a declining Dutch auction that actually uh, makes it so everybody pays a different price all at the same time. And the price drops and, until it sells out, which creates all sorts of perverse incentives and, and people are all worried. And at the end of the day, everybody except for the last buyer actually pays more than somebody else. So everybody walks away feeling pretty crappy. In this scenario, everybody pays the same amount. Second, no one could argue that this isn't a fair market price, right? That's the, that's the high-level goal. You're trying to figure out what is the, the right market price for this. And everybody in this case is willing to pay at least $400. So you can assume that that's a uh, you know, that, that's fair market price. And then finally, because of the, the nature of the, the Dutch auction, um, over 90%, in this case, there's only 10 products, 90%, but in the VFriends auction we just did, over 97% of people actually pay less than what they bid. And that is an amazing thing to be able to do. Everybody's happy that they get to, to pay less. And so it's a really kind of a win-win-win for everybody as creating a fair system. And then if it, if it is done right, if there's no, you know, if, if, the, if it's done right, then what happens is once the, the retail market closes, once that auction closes and the secondary market opens up and these people can, who the winners can go sell it wherever they want, they can sell it on eBay or sell it to their friends, then what almost always happens is the price then goes up because if you take the 10 winning bids as a sample set of the population at large, well, some people are willing to pay way more than what that clearing price was. So there's some headspace for people to still make money on that, but it will usually be much less than if it had been an arbitrary retail price that would have been really low. So I'm going a bit like too far into the, the math here, but when we did the, the VFriends release, um, which you know was obviously a, a trading card set based on Gary Vaynerchuk's NFT project, there's no comp to be able to, to price NFT cards. This has never existed before. 
And we knew we were also making them very limited. There was only a thousand boxes, uh, each of which had 10,000 cards. There was, you know, one of ones, there were hand-drawn cards by Gary, there's autographed cards by Gary. So we knew that there was going to be high demand for this, but how do you price that? You just guess. So no. So we let the market set the price and, and sure enough, you know, the clearing price ended up coming in at $2,150, which is almost exactly where I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be around 2000 bucks. And then immediately, uh, once it ended, boxes were selling on eBay for, you know, five, $6,000. And, you know, now a week later, boxes have sold for $16,000 on eBay. And that makes sense. There were bids over $16,000, you know, in the, the blind Dutch auction. Those people paid twenty-one fifty. So, you know, this is the, the economics and the theory of it coming to life. And so um, that really is the most important part of this release. And by the way, with most of what we'll do at Zero Cool, it really is about, about this model. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So when you think about that secondary pricing, you know, what's the insight you think you get on the pricing mechanism that a fair clearing price was $2,150, but instantaneously there are people that must have either not bid or bid lower than that, that suddenly were willing to pay $5,000. Yeah. What did that teach you about the market and, you know, how it plays out? Well, it's a good question because we're literally studying that right now and, and trying to figure out. What we're trying to do right now is cut the data every way we can to see what we can learn. There were 22,644 bids over three days for vFriends products. There were only 800 boxes available for sale. We made 1,200 went for promotional purposes and customer service issues, et cetera. So 800 available for sale. That's the supply. The demand was 22,644. But if the clearing price is 21.50, that means that I'm going to do my quick math, but whatever 22,644 minus 800 is, 21,800, something, I don't know. That's how many people bid less than 2150. That's how many people were not willing to pay 2150 you know, in the auction. In fact, the most highly populous bid was 100 bucks. So what does that mean when it changes? I don't know, right? It's, it's an interesting question. And if we ran a VFriends auction tomorrow, would the clearing price be higher? I don't know, right? But all the mechanisms of the bidding process, it being blind, having three days, having 100% transparency in terms of, you know, everything you could possibly tell somebody about the product. How many times does a company ever tell somebody not only the exact print run, but that we're going to do take exactly 200 for marketing purposes? Like that never happens. So you do everything possible to try to get to that person placing a bid with all outside influences to try to say, what is this worth to me? What am I willing to pay for this product is this right now without any inside influences? But now to your question and, and what we're going through now is 
well, how does this result then play into that next IPO and what people think about it? Because the next one, by the way, which will come out pretty soon, is going to be a completely different product. It's going to be a different topic. It's going to be different quantities, different chase items. So this is the the kind of like nerdy fun of this is like getting into it and trying to, to predict uh, clearing prices and where the market goes and, and all that. But, um, you know, we're, we're trying very hard to make it a, a transparent, fair process, if nothing else. Yeah. So when you think about this, you know, you mentioned the fragmentation and said, you know, look, I want a hobby shop on every single corner. One of the super inefficient things historically of highly sought after in demand, but very limited supply is who gets those and what's the allocation where it goes out. But it's also something that can bring foot traffic and bring things in that people are searching for. And it happens, you know, every industry out there. And, you know, we're dealing with this conflict between D to C uh, with manufacturers and then traditional support networks that help rise the whole industry. How do you think an industry balances out, not just in trading cards, but, you know, your previous world with sneakers and everything else, this tension between highly sought after collectible things being D to C sold versus things that you're going to the industry as a whole that might not be the most efficient, but it's needed for the the drawing people, the foot traffic, et cetera. Yeah. You know, when we launched StockX and started to get a little bit of traction, the people that were the loudest, the people that were the maddest um, were those resellers who used to be able to win on imperfect information. Yep. They were the ones who were selling a pair of shoes for $1,000 and said, hey, but buy my shoe it's thousand dollars. You know, there's none other available. But meanwhile, there were ten other guys around the corner who also had that shoe available. But because there was no transparency in terms of supply, in terms of access and uh, and pricing, that you didn't know that. Um, and that's really what what StockX did. It was really about access. Um, and the people that that got that, you know, they found their place in the industry. And the people that wanted to to continue to profit on you know arbitrage moved on to a different industry, maybe trading cards, actually. For, for the time being. And so um, it's really about, you know, I use this term a lot, right? It's about equitable distribution. It's about creating the fairest way to distribute products that everybody wants. In a lot of these cases, it's free money, right? Like Target, Walmart, you know, they put a, a blaster box of Prism on the shelf. It's got a $29, $29.99, you know, price tag on it. And that product is immediately worth $100. Well, that's free money sitting on the shelf. Like who wouldn't buy that regardless of whether they even like trading cards? So, you know, the 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 questions around distribution and D2C versus whether it's hobby shops or distributors or everywhere else starts with the idea of how do you do this fairly that you're not creating perverse incentives to, to sleep outside of Target or to pay off the, the guy who works at a hobby shop because, you know, he's got an allocation. And does that mean that uh, that allocations to hobby shops distributors go away? No, it just means that maybe there's a different way to choose how they get it, or maybe choose what they pay for it. You could imagine a blind Dutch auction being used, not just like we did with V Friends, where it was open to the whole world, but hey, maybe there's distributors and they always got product X from the manufacturers every year, and it was a distributor product. Well, great. Maybe in the future it still goes to distributors, but instead of us coming up with an arbitrary price. We allow them to buy using a blind Dutch auction. They're the only ones that can participate. It's not open to the public, 
right? But again, it's an allocation method. And I don't want to keep coming back to blind obstruction. I think that's the only mechanism. It, it is one of them. But, you know, it's all about, you know, how do you create fairness in the system? And, you know, if that is your driving sort of motivation, then you work through the things on, in terms of product changing from one channel to another to another. Because at the end of the day, all those channels have to continue to exist. We still have to have hobby shops and distributors and, you know, D2C and breakers and all of that because, I mean, those are all vital parts of the industry, for, even just for functional reasons. Product actually has to physically move from, from one place to another. So um, it's really about sort of eliminating those like old-time arbitrage and, and backdoor dealings, transparent efficiency and, and, and fairness. So I want to get back where we started the conversation that, you know, when you wrote the white paper, you very specifically called it trading cards are cool again. And with Zero Cool, you've got this culturally relevant, what you did with Z Friends. You know, you didn't say baseball cards. You didn't say sports cards. You said trading cards. And the first thing from Fanatics Collectibles has been something that's very culturally relevant. So when you think about these, you know, lack of a better term, pieces of paper and what they're becoming and where they're going, where do you see culture coming into play and expanding beyond, you know, the baseball cards that maybe we all started collecting initially? Well, I mean, you know, I love this topic more than anything. Um, the paper is called Trading Cards Are Cool Again, and it's interesting that you focus on the trading card part uh, and not necessarily. It was, a, it was a declarative statement that's not true yet. It's funny, the number of, <laughs> maybe the only like real negative backlash I got on the white paper was people who said, cards have always been cool. Where have you been? Um, <laughs> which uh, you know, is fair. But the point is, is that, yeah, they've always been cool to a small group of us, but the rest of the world doesn't. No, believe that they, for, they don't even know it and that's the thing right the way that we grow this industry as we go back to kind of the the, the driving you know uh goal of all of this we have to drive, grow the industry forward and we can only do that i think if trading cards become truly part of culture and ingrained into all parts of culture in the same way that that sneakers did over the last decade you know sneakers were once a very underground you know, kind of like side thing that nobody uh, thought much of and had its own little niche community. And it's become, you know, something much more. And there's a lot of reasons why, but more than anything, Nike and Yeezy and Jordan Brand and, and the companies in the space, they made sneakers truly part of culture. And they did so by engaging the most important people in culture other than athletes. They already had athletes as part of, you know, Nike and, and Adidas, right? So how did, how did Nike and, and Adidas leverage Kanye and Pharrell and Drake and Travis Scott? And, and it wasn't just having them wear their product. It was bringing them in, engaging them in the creation process and the collaboration process. Sneaker collaborations, if you want to say, what was the like silver bullet? It was sneaker collaborations with those, with those high profile people. Because, hey, Travis Scott's people and the Travis Scott's fans might like Nike if Travis wears Nike, but they're going to like it a whole lot better if Travis is designing Nikes. And then that same idea is how do we do that for trading cards? Well, you know, I can't, force Travis Scott fans to like basketball cards. But if I made rapper cards and I have Travis in the set, then they're way more likely to like, like trading cards that way. So Zero Cool really is about new audiences. It's about exposing new audiences trading cards. One, because we think there's a market there and we can sell cards in those spaces. But also because nobody is a you know, only likes one thing, or I guess almost nobody only likes one thing. Even sports card collectors might have other hobbies. So maybe you're a basketball card collector, but you're saturated in your basketball card collecting because Panini makes 50 basketball card sets a year. So you're good. But maybe you also like fashion 
And then, you know, we come out with a fashion set and, oh, okay, well, uh, maybe I'll buy a couple of fashion, you know, boxes as well, right? Because that's just a different part of your personality and interest base as you do that. So it kind of works on, on both halves of that. And it all goes to the larger, you know, question of, you know, how do we grow the industry? How do we grow it smart? And I think, you know, having it truly part of culture is just one of the, the key parts of that. And so that's, that's a big focus of, of what Zero Pool is. So on that note, you know, last week you guys dropped something with Zero Cool and Nike. Uh, talk about that and how, you know, that was kind of a defining moment for what you guys are up to. It was the the quietest defining moment of my life. Um, so the um, the month before we launched StockX, January of 2016, I was invited to speak at a Nike Jordan brand leadership offsite. It was at the Presidio in San Francisco. Um, I'd done the TED Talk about sneakers about six months before that. And I got up on stage and the first chart was a table. Keep in mind, we hadn't launched StockX yet. The first chart was a table. It was two columns. On the left-hand side was year. And on the right-hand side, it said, did Josh apply for a job at Nike and get rejected? And there were 15 years on the left from 1991 through 2016. And it said, no, 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 no. Which is to say that I've been trying to work with Nike literally all my entire life. And every waking minute at StockX was trying to work with Nike and trying to work with Jordan Brand, and we never did. And on the day that we launched Zero Cool, we had a, a, a trading card, a Zero Cool trading card in a Nike box about a Nike card. And this is absolutely a function of what I talked about earlier, which is our generation grew up with trading cards and we're all back into it and we love it. And there's a guy whose name is Edison Chen, who is the founder and runs the streeter brand Clot, which is based out of Hong Kong. And he's become a friend that I've helped him get back into trading cards over the past couple of years. And he's made 25 different sneakers with Nike, maybe even more. And it was him driving this and telling Nike that trading cards are cool again, and that we should do trading cards and have a card in the set. And then came to me and said, do you guys want to do it? And I was like, hell yeah, we want to do it. And so it wasn't a traditional you know, product where you open up and have chase elements and, and try to, you know, open packs. There was one single card in the, the shoe, which is called the Nike Dunk Flux, which was like a lenticular shoe, it almost kind of looked like the old Sport Flix cards. And it was a card of the sneaker itself. And there was a couple of chase elements. You could get a version that was signed by Edison himself. And, uh, you know, we made no money off this, obviously. And, and most people don't even know, but man, like we have a product in a Nike box on the day we launched, like, that's pretty cool. So. so, you know, let's talk. You've mentioned a few times the this aspect of breaking is one of those kind of new business models that, that's emerged. When you think about Fanatics Collectibles over the next few years, how are you looking at those new business models that are out there? And what's the role of helping as many hobby shops open as possible, but, you know, breakers are digital hobby shops. So how do you think about all these channels and how you can support them to grow it? Yeah. So to our... our you know, earlier conversation around this, you know, integrated customer journey, the, the, the use of technology to make that easier for people to come into the hobby and, and navigate their way through it. Breaking is the part of the hobby that's probably closest to what we do today. Well, I guess distribution is. So, you know, you print cards, you know, then we make cards and, and we sell them. They go through a distribution channel, but then when somebody buys a box of cards, they're going to do one of three things or they're going to you know open it they're going to sell it or they're going to put it away uh and if they open it there's one of two ways to do that they either do it themselves or have it done uh, as a break whether it's 
they're buying into a break or whether it's a personal break and someone's breaking it for you. So um, we think that's a pretty important part of the customer journey that we need to be um, very involved in. It's not, I think, news that we are going to create breaking ourselves. It will still, there will still be highly fragmented and, and tens and hundreds and thousands of other breakers. And then we figure out how do we support everybody because the product has to come from us at some point or, or, or most of the unopened product you know, has to come from us at, at some point. But it's about how do you leverage technology so that you know, people can have access to the, the data while they're breaking, um, even just the, the metadata around what are cards called. Talk about like a, a basic data problem that should have been solved decades ago. The naming conventions for trading cards are not established today by the manufacturers. They're established by the grading companies. So you can have one card that's created by Pinini that PSA, BGS, and SGC all call at something different. This is a purple prism. This one's a, a purple pulsar parallel. Like, you know, that's even that, that basic stuff of that is on us because we create the cards to name it, have people access to that data so the breakers can properly track the price and, and promote it and figure out, and, and then it goes into grading and everything else. So um, uh, a lot of people did not uh, see that for a while, for a couple of months, we had a, a job post up for a head of, head of breaking. And so um, it's about the whole ecosystem, but I'll, I'll leave with one very specific thing that, that we will do at some point. Um, you know, I mentioned that blind Dutch auctions are not the only mechanism for market-based pricing. Another is breaking. So I could foresee a scenario where we create a product that is only available to the public, direct to consumer through us, through our breaking team or our breaking partners. So it's a release mechanism. It's a way to get product into the market that is different than, than exists today that is a form of, of market-based pricing, is a way to get the true market price for that, that product. So I think if you start with the premise that um, there's a lot of creative ways you can use breaking and then to do it together, like, yeah, like that's, that, that's what we're going to do. And, um, and it's, frankly, it's pretty exciting because uh, it also is the, the tip of the spear for content marketing in this whole industry. This is where the best content will be produced. This is where the highest level content will be produced ultimately. And it, the, the massive highlights and massive hits should show up on SportsCenter. They should show up on, you know, on Instagram in the same way that people look at basketball highlights. So, and they already do, except just to a small community. But how do we do that with, with Fanatics and with the leagues who are our partners and amplify that content um, in the same way that the NBA you know, allows anyone in the world to, to share their highlights on, on Instagram Right. That, that's a good thing for promotion of the league. We should be thinking about breaking in, in much the same way. Love that. So, you know, you have a ton coming up in the next few years as the licenses kick in and everything else. But let's say we're looking back having this talk 12 months from now. What are you going to be most excited about that you've got going on, either that you guys have done over the last year or that's coming up on the horizon? So two things, one I can talk about and, uh, and one I can't. So for sure, the macro thing that it was most excited about is it's quite simply um, just marketing the category, which sounds trivial, but the trading card manufacturers grew so fast, so quickly over the past five years that one, their marketing budgets and teams couldn't react. And two, they were almost disincentivized from continuing to market because supply chain couldn't keep up. So they didn't want to create more demand where they couldn't fulfill the current demand. Panini still hasn't released you know, a basketball product from, from this year and the season's almost over. 
so high level marketing of the whole hobby, which includes, I mean, look at the, the difference from the V friends release from a marketing standpoint as any trading card release over the past year, right? None of them get, get that sort of attention. Um, but then take that a step further. Um, the mint collective, which is a industry conference that's happening at, uh, at MGM, the weekend of March 25th, uh, 6th and 7th is the first time I think we're going to see the entire industry all in one place or as much as possible. And we're going to have a real presence and, you know, have a full team there and, and really like it'll be noticeable to, to have that. So how do we show up at the national? You know, how do we leverage our, our league partners to grow the hobby? How do we leverage, you know, Fanatic's core business and, and their, you know, 85 million sports fans? Like that's what's going to be you know extraordinary when we really get going on that. And by the way, uh, we're kind of at the one yard line with hiring a CMO, and and that person will then come in and build a team, and and we get to do that. So um, that's it's generic, but it is by far the most exciting and, and fun part of this. And then secondly, what I can tell you about that I can't tell you about is just the the stuff at zero cool side. This is about all of culture, not just NFTs or not just TV and movies or not just traditional part, but, you know, how do we really expand out and do stuff that people have never even thought about in trading cards, but are all premised to our, you know, earlier uh, conversation around making trading cards truly part of culture and to do that and bring the most important people in the world into trading cards in some way or another. And so you have to wait and see how, um, but that's the goal on, on that side as well. That is a great place to uh, end the conversation on. So I appreciate you taking all the time and For amazing sure. your, uh, everything you got going on. No, thanks, man. I, I appreciate having me. This is this is the fun part. Like we were just like get to to the V friends release because then it, it just amplifies the conversation so much. And by the way, then gives us more resources, more partners, more opportunities to go and continue doing what we want to do. Indeed. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.